Hello again, this is Summer Reading with the Deals, Season 1, Episode 2. It's really our third episode, but it's the second official episode as we uh, do a deep analysis and discussion of the novel Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner from 1936. So uh, in our Zero episode, we discussed basically the overview of the novel, why we chose to discuss this, and did some reflections on previous reads of this, and, and of course we had to tell the story, uh, or I did, about how Whitney impressed me so much talking about Absalom Absalom that I just had to re, you know, vis- visit the class she was in again, and after that class I talked to her, and that was December 5th, 2003, and we're married now, and we've been married for hmm, 13 years, so... Um, that was a pretty momentous uh, day in my life when, when Whitney was talking about Absalom Absalom in the great American novels, sorry, no, the 20th century American novel class at University of Georgia with Dr. Hubert McAlexander. So, um, who looks a little like Faulkner, just to me, sad note, a little mustache yes. and kind of a smaller man. Yes, and, but uh, he's bald, but, um, but has the same uh, Mississippi accent. They're both from Mississippi. So, um, Shout out to Dr. McAlexander if you're listening. Um, I'm a college professor now, just like you. So, anyways, um, we're talking about Absalom Absalom, and we talked about Rosa Coldfield because she's the first character we encounter uh, that Quentin Compson, who had been uh, a central character in The Sound of the Fury already, uh, is asked, you know, he's invited to, to hear her story, and not only to hear her story, but to go out to Sutpen's Hundred uh, and... and see what's in the dark house. And I mentioned the dark house in, in, um, intentionally because that's the original title for the novel. So we're going to talk about the title for the novel, Absalom, comma, Absalom, exclamation point, uh, in a separate episode. But uh, we will allude to it just a little bit today as we talk about what you may consider the central character of the novel, Thomas Sutpen, a.k.a. the demon, a.k.a. Um, the, you know the <laughs> the you know the 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 poor man made made rich uh, rags to riches. Um, you know I, I think it's it's a quintessential American trope to think about coming from nothing and becoming something of importance, something of power, something of riches, uh, something of um, uh, like a lasting legacy. And uh, as Whitney's going to uh, inquire later in the episode, is Thomas Sutpen a great man? Uh, not a good man, but a great man. So we're going to talk about that uh, as, we, as we wind up. But as we get started, I, I'm going to reread the, the back of the book. Absalom Absalom is Faulkner's epic tale of Thomas Sutpen, an enigmatic stranger who comes to Jefferson, Mississippi in the early 1830s to wrest his mansion out of the muddy bottoms of the North Mississippi wilderness. He was a man, Faulkner said, who wanted sons, and the sons destroyed him. Now, that kind of gives away the book, in a way. In a way, it doesn't tell you anything of the experience of reading this book. And if you're reading this along with us as we discuss it, you will agree from the first sentence onward, this does not read like a mundane, run-of-the-mill storybook story. It it is very highly stylized. 
incredibly uh, high, uh, you know, high diction and 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 word choice. Um, just the the sentence structure is is almost indecipherable at points. And as I mentioned, there's what was it at that point the world's longest sentence? It's actually 1,288 words, um, but it's um, around about halfway through the book. So, um, just before we get to Thomas Sutpen, uh, the encasement that his story has is is very ornate. It is very um, difficult, I think, in some ways, but I think it's it's worthy of the story of a, a, a grand Southern epic, which is what Faulkner's trying to tell about the, the Sutpen name, Thomas Sutpen the person, and Thomas Sutpen the design, and that word's very influential in the book, and we'll talk about that in, in the course of our discussion. So, Whitney, let's, let's start off. As you were rereading this, I mean, you knew that Thomas Sutpen was going was gonna to matter to the story, but early on as you were rereading it, did you really get the impression, okay, this, this character is really coming to life for me, and this character seems really rounded out, and, and I, I really want to keep reading to find out what happens to Thomas Sutpen? Well, in the early chapters, um, Rosa creates this larger-than-life you know, kind of, we said demonized picture or almost like mythologized picture of him. And I think that it's a little hard to grapple with, with that in terms of kind of putting flesh and blood on it in your mind and understanding what he's supposed to be. Um, Quentin says that it's like he's haunting her voice and he is entering the room. And, you know, for Quentin, hearing Rosa speak, Thomas really comes to life. Although, interestingly, he says that it seems like the ghost of Thomas wouldn't really even be particularly bothered by all Rosa's anger. So it's like this impotent anger she has, and he's just sort of, you know, beyond it or something, even though he's forced to, like, kind of be there because he's being summoned by her voice. But so at the beginning, no, I guess, is the answer to your question. I didn't feel as if he was this sort of vivid, compelling character in the same way that I might have if it were a stri- straightforwardly kind of realistically told novel. But I think that increasingly, like especially when Jason Thompson starts telling about gr- his grandfather's stories and, and like memories about Sutpen, it gets more vivid to me because it felt like General Thompson saw Thomas Sutpen in a... Um, you know, more kind of grounded way. And it felt more like a real person. Yes. So for me, that whole section, I mean, I'm, I was a little perplexed and it took me a while to wrap my head around what Jason Thompson meant by saying that Sutpen was innocent. But once I started understanding what that word meant in his personal lexicon, I started to understand just a, what seemed to me a more fully fleshed out, rounded picture of this guy. So <clears throat> you brought up a lot of great points about Sutpen, and, and one of the I think one of the, the biggest words in this novel is innocence, um, because there is an element of the South, and especially the antebellum South, that the, the postbellum South ascribed an innocence to it, now, this is literally what every person does to the past. I mean, 
<laughs> Everybody from Adam and Eve forward is looking back and saying, gosh, it was pretty good before we, before we listened to the serpent. I mean, whether it's a decade or two in the past or whether it's five decades in the past or whether it's a hundred decades in the past, there's this element of the past that is, is um, complete. And so it's, um, you know, we look back on it and we, you know, I, I think some, some people look back at the past and they only see the, the, the haunting scars of the past. And some people look back at the past and they only see the beauty and the blossoms. And the reality is the past is as complex as the present and will be as complex as the future. But because we are living in the present, we cannot fully fathom how complex our lives are. And yet we can see the complexity much more clearly than someone, say, 50 or 100 years into the future who would only see, you know, in our cases, they might see Facebook posts or tweets or Instagram posts or, or, or maybe read an email or something like that, that, that. They really would not get to see that three-dimensional of a picture of us, just as we can't see that three-dimensional of a picture of Thomas Sutpen because his, his narrators don't even know him. The only one that knew him was Rosa, and she didn't know him well. I like it about the the way Faulkner presents the story is that he does those two things you just described about the past. Like he lets Rosa um, focus on the scars and the wounds and the evil done and, and sort of look back on this figure from the past as if he were um, had just so much less conscience and compunction than a person would in the modern day, which I think we sometimes people look back at people from the past and kind of demonize them, think they're just benighted. Um, or just more evil than we are or something. But then you shift to Jason Thompson, whose mm-hmm. grandfather kind of left him this picture of Thomas Sutpen as being a, an innocent man, almost kind of a, in some ways, a naive man, which is yes. the opposite yes. of the corrupting man that Rosa saw him as. It can It's very destabilizing because you're like, what is the truth? But then you realize that there's probably some truth in both or... Um, that it's more, it's more subtle than one or the other. And yeah. Jason says all these funny things, kind of funny. I don't know, just maybe a little simple-minded. Like he says, um, in, people who are from the past were simpler and therefore integer for integer larger, more heroic. And then he also says that um, he calls the people... The, his ancestors born in the South, shadowy paragons. Mm. <laughs> and I think that that's a powerful passage that you read because I, I do believe, just like prime numbers, 1, 2, 3, 5, 7, 11, 13, right? There are a lot of them bunched up together at the beginning, but the, the higher the number you go, the, the harder it is to find a prime number. And I think that's how Jason Compson, Quentin's father, sees the past. He sees these people as less encumbered by history. And so they can't be as complex as he is because he has to know his story plus their story plus the stories before them. And and I do think there is a truth to that. I think that that that's an accurate depiction of just the way history works, the way personal stories work and families. Um, And we talk all the time, Adam, about how 
how much of a burden it is in addition to being a blessing to live in this this modern kind of globalized internet age when you have to bear the bur- we don't have to but you feel sort of responsible to bear the burdens of like a whole nation or a whole world's worth of suffering and not just like sort of turn it off and tune it out and silence is complicity you know all like i have to just jump into the fray of things that are happening around the whole entire world whereas in an earlier age and for most of human history people were freer to be involved in the things happening in their very own community and not and that's enough frankly that's it's enough if you're plugged into a community, it's enough heartache and suffering and responsibility and pain without trying to take on the psychic burden of the whole world's suffering or something. And I think there are some people, and Quentin is a great example of this, and may, maybe his dad, Jason, is as well. But this idea of there are observers and absorbers in life, and there are people that just make impressions on others. And, and Sutpin... <laughs> is the ultimate impressor. He does not get pressed upon. There's one time in his life that something happens to him, and every other thing that happens, he makes happen. Even (laughs) when his son Henry kills Charles Bond, it sort of happens to him. It's sort of his fault. We'll talk about that later. But... But this idea of Thomas Sutpen is just not an observant, um, you know, wallflower of a person. He's a, he's a go-getter. He gets things done. He has a vision, and he follows it to the, to, the, to the end that he can. Even after his son kills Charles Bond, he tries with Rosa, and he says, hey, let's make a baby, and if, we, if it's a boy, I'll marry you. Now, that contradicts the the purity that he saw when he went into his first marriage, which happened in Haiti. Um, we'll talk about that in a second. But but that idea of he has not given up on his design just because every single piece of his design got shattered. He just tried to start over again, and Rosa's like, no thank you, and, and rightfully so. We talked about that last episode. But, but then he turns to Millie Jones, who is Wash Jones's granddaughter I believe who is like 14 or 15 and so you know we're talking about Rosa who at that time was in her early 20s and now all of a sudden someone that's even younger than that and Sutton by the way is in his 60s and so or almost he's almost 60 when he he, uh, propositions Rosa and he is in his 60s when when he uh, tries to procreate with with Wash Jones's granddaughter so um you know, one of the things we ended with last episode, and I'd like to kind of like, you know, push forward with here is that idea of portraiture, that this novel has a lot of portraiture happening. And Thomas Sutpin does not paint a self-portrait in this novel. There's nothing narrated by him. We get very little of his own voice. And what we get of it is secondhand. So in a courtroom, that would be hearsay, and it could be stricken. I'm not a lawyer. I've just watched lost television shows. But I think that's important that Faulkner has one eyewitness and then he has one secondhand witness in Jason. And then Quentin is also a secondhand witness to Rosa, but he's a thirdhand witness to his grandfather, Jason. This, I think it's Jason the 
the second is his grandfather. Jason the third is his father, and Jason the fourth is his brother, um, who is not in this novel. But I just thought I'd mention him. And so, um, the idea of who are paint, who are the people painting Thomas Sutpen's portraits? Well, it's someone that knew him and hates him, someone whose grandfather, or sorry, whose father was friends with him, and then Quentin and and Shreve, who, you know, he he was dead long before they were even born. And, and they are going to just see him through a different lens than Rosa or Jason or Jason's father or the people of Jefferson. And so here, here is this, in some ways, very complex person, and yet in some ways extremely simple, uh, who has a vision. And, and Whitney, where, where do you think that vision starts? I mean, I think it, it's made pretty clear that the vision starts when he's not allowed to go in the front door of this planter's house, this plantation house. You know, his family has moved to this area where there are plantations. and Tidewater, Virginia. Right. And he's a slave has told him he can't come to the front door, even though he has a an actual message, you know, a purpose for being there. Um, and he... I, th- I thought it was interesting how long it depicted him as going and just sitting and thinking that through and thinking through the implications of it. Like, yes. what should I do? What should I take away from this? And I think one of the most important takeaways that he gleans from that is that even though he is white, in practice, he is actually worse off than, like, say, that slave who lives in that nice house and has power over him and has nicer clothes than he's ever seen. And um, he said, so he's, he's kind of got a, an envy and resentment for that slave, which is, you know, for him, confusing. He feels envy and resentment for the um, plantation owner who sits in a hammock all day. He thinks, I could maybe I could shoot one or both of them. That'd be revenge, but what's that going to do for me, essentially? I mean, he kind of thinks that through to its logical conclusion and thinks, you know, what I really want is to do something for myself. I don't want to just like hurt these people. And he, he says hurting the shooting the slave would be like shooting a balloon or something. He, he dehumanizes him to the point where he's like, he's utterly irrelevant, but even the plantation owner, you know, he doesn't want to kill the plantation owner. He wants to transcend him. And so the design begins. Yeah. Now Whitney brings up many good points. One of which is, I really don't think Thomas Sutpen is so steeped in racism that he would be called a bitter racist. I think he lives in an era where racism is the zeitgeist, and or in in America, in antebellum south, you know, south. That that's that's just the worldview that governs, and so he is susceptible. He 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 cannot elevate himself above that worldview when he's thirteen years old. Now, the thing about it is, in some ways, his his plan starts there, and in some ways, it starts much before that, because I think that Thomas Sutpen is a stand-in, just as I said last episode, that Rosa is a stand-in for the, for the, the post-bellum, the, the, the Reconstruction South, really, from 1865 through 1909. I think that Thomas Sutpen is a stand-in for the antebellum South. And he has all of these elements that made it 
uh, go from nothing. I mean, it was wilderness. It, it was wilderness and, and, and Native Americans, and it went from that to being a country. I mean, it, it, they, they became a country. And so fast through this, like, kind of brutal force of will, I guess. Um, and he doesn't have this true gentility yeah. that, you know, I think a lot of Southern, like, landed people wanted to pride themselves on having, but um, anyone who was, a like, a landed kind of gentry or, or no nobleman from Europe would just laugh that away. Yeah. Well, Whitney brings up where I was going to go, which is Europe is the blueprint for the, the antebellum South, uh, especially England. This idea of owning land, having other people work it, you get to be rich off of it, and you just get to do fun stuff all day, like sit in a hammock, go hunting, um, you know, ride your horse over your property, which, you know, nowadays you might think of someone like riding a four-wheeler over their property. It's like people do, people do the same thing now that they always have done, but that sense of not having to work was a sign of success. And um, to some extent, that's still true today, but I think it was, it, it was so visible back then because you could see, you know, if you even saw one black face on someone's property or in someone's house, that meant they owned a slave. And so that, pro- that process of accumulating not just monetary wealth, but property, and by extension, human property, was so visible, and so here is Thomas Upton as a 13-year-old, which I think is important because it's about 1820 when this happens, and 1820 is right when Mississippi becomes a state. And so Thomas Upton sees this, and he, he has never in his life until this very moment understood there's such a thing as inequality. He's only understood there's such a thing as luck. And that, you know, some people are luckier than others. And he's from a region where there was no slavery. I mean, he never really, like, interacted with any slaves. And so it says something like it dawns on him suddenly that there are distinctions to be drawn between white men that have to do with things other than how much liquor can I hold or something like that or who can win in a fist fight. Like, the people he grew up among, that's how they proved their worth and masculinity. And he is his eyes were open to this whole new, you know, anytime I think when you realize that there's such a bigger pond out there and there are people who have so much more money than you do or so much more power than you've ever even really known was possible. And it can either be demoralizing and make you mad or you can take Thomas Upton's path and say like, I will have that. I will have more. And I think there's, there's an impetus in Thomas Upton that says, if you can't beat them, join them. But I also think there is an impetus in him that says you can't beat them unless you join them. And that's what Whitney pointed out is that he knows that even if he killed the landowner, even if he killed the master of the plantation, it wouldn't solve his problem. And that's that he was undignified. His dignity was denied not by the owner, but by the slave of the owner who, like Whitney said, was better dressed than him, was probably better educated than he was, was, was certainly better fed than he was, was more, lived in a more comfortable place than he did. And so Thomas Sutton sets out to rectify the, the wrong that he has felt 
and and there are a lot of theories on what the, you know how exactly he does that, and 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 we only get some details, and and um, you know I, I mentioned that this starts before his incident, and that's because the South had modeled itself on the English gentility, but they had taken it a step further. Instead of saying people will work for us and they'll pay us a lot and we'll let them have enough to live on, they took it a step further and made forced slavery the way that they would become rich. And, And so that was I guess, you know, people have talked about America's original sin. It's like, well, that is the way that America set itself apart from England. And I think in a way, I mean, you're talking about England had been habitated, you know, had inhabited for, you know, 2,000 years. And so we're talking about, you know, a, a wilderness that had never been cut down in all of America. And, and well, you you couldn't do that by getting five people that are, you know, sharecropping on your land to, to cut down all the trees and plant all it, I mean, it would take too long. And so the way that they solved that problem, and, you know, like I said, is, is, is a, a, the problem we still deal with in America today is, is the sin of slavery and the sense that you can just take someone and make them do it. Now, that's how Virginia got to be so wealthy. And so Virginia, Tidewater, Virginia in 1820, when Sutpen is, is denied at the front door and is asked, asked to go back to the back door where the slaves would have to go, that is his moment of seeing not just Southern power, but really the English, uh, the Pax Britannia, you know, that England was really ruling the world in 1820. And so um, here's who who is the child of a man who'd been at the Old Bailey, which is like the jail in London, and his mother was Scottish. And so there's this element of this story that, that is really, really subtle, but it's, it's really just as much a story about the Scottish and the Irish trying to find equality with England through the New World. Um, another just wrinkle that you were making me think of just then to this idea of Thomas Hutpin as the some sort of representative of the antebellum South. Cause I, I tend to not think that way. I think, you know, in terms of like this character represents this, but now that you've got me thinking that way, um, I think that it's important somehow that Thomas realizes he's not going to be able to ha- make that transformation of himself from rags to riches in Tidewater, Virginia. It's like it's too it's too advanced a, a society for like a new blood to enter in, and so he goes to Haiti, and then he goes to Mississippi, and so he goes to these more raw places. And Haiti specifically, you know, he had heard it was a place where you could make a fortune, and so he goes and tries his luck there. And um, anyone who's kind of bold and he, he, I think he says he trusts in his own shrewdness and courage. And so he thinks anyone who's shrewd and courageous is going to be able to make a killing there. And he, he kind of manages to make it happen, but he brings to Mississippi these Haitian slaves. And in, even in Mississippi at that time, which was like, still, like we said, this raw new place, there was a sense that the slaves who lived there were kind of like American slaves. Like they spoke English and they, 
we're like kind of used to the system, you know, to some degree and everything. Whereas these Haitian slaves that he brings, people are like kind of scared of them. They don't wear clothes. They don't know English. They're speaking French, but um, they think of them as really like wild and kind of scary. And um, they think of Thomas Sutton as kind of wild and scary as well. And I think this novel shows the limits of kind of assimilating into the planter class. And that's part of his innocence, just like the Jay Gatsby innocence to think that, yeah, I can do this. Like if I make enough money, I'll be part of it. And realizing that money's only, only part of what makes you an elite. But all that to say, you know, America was desperate I think as a place, and maybe the South in a, in a unique way, to be considered sophisticated and advanced and cultured and civilized. And most Europeans were just sort of not having it. And America, by the end of the 19th century, is going to be like a great power. Mm-hmm. It's going to be rivaling Germany and and England for like great power status, but it yeah. is not, even, there's like no vision for it being there yet in 1820, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, this idea of 1820 and the reason I bring that up is, you know, just like I mentioned with Rose's uh, episode 43 years, she just hearkens on it again and again and again and again. And I think that Faulkner meant for us to think about what else is 43 years. And one of the things that's 43 years is, the you know the length of time as I said, from um, now now I lost it but uh, one of the things is um, Judith's lifetime and one of the things is uh, Jason Compson's lifetime up to the point the novel is happening uh, approximately because we're assuming if Quentin is the oldest and Jason you know got married young and you know had kids young he's probably in his mid 40s telling these stories but one of the things that we also have is is this idea of the time period that that Mississippi is a state before the civil war starts you know th- this idea of just i guess th- the scope of time and this idea of 40 years, you know, 40 years is a, is a significant amount of time in the Bible. And um, it really is a concept that I think, you know, Sutpen is not trying to embody it. He just naturally does. But he is, you know, here he is as a, as a young person learning these lessons that he's going to use the next 40 years of his life to try and, I guess, kind of live to see, okay, well, what will happen when someone comes to my door who I don't know? Will I send him back to the back door? Why or why not? And there there are several characters that do that, and we'll, we'll talk about them a little bit today. But that concept, I think, is really powerful because... Here he is as a 13-year-old trying to make a decision. You know, it's just a dream at that point. And I think when he comes from Haiti to Mississippi, it's gone from a dream to a goal. And I think he knows 
he will do it because he's so ruthless and he, he's already, I mean, basically the, the, the timing is a little off. I think the Haitian revolution had already happened, the slave revolution in, in Haiti. And that but, was like when the French revolution happened. Yeah. So, so Faulkner is a little bit off there. Actually no slavery in Haiti by the time Sutpen would have gotten his slaves from Haiti. But I think there's this element of he has to go someplace other than America to be able to come back and become something more powerful. And that kind of connects to uh, Bonnie Prince Charles, um, who is, you know, this, the son of, of James, right? James II. And so, you know, the Scottish king, James I, was cousins with Elizabeth, you know, Queen Elizabeth, and, and there's this element of Scotland for a short time had the power of the throne in the you know in, in England, but then uh, after the the English Civil War that has changed, and then they restore Charles the Second. No, I'm not right. Charles Second. Charles the Second, um, but it's not Bonnie Prince Charles. No, so it's two two different families. James Charles Charles James. Yes, that's right. First, first, second, second. <laughs> and so in between the protectorate. Yeah. Okay. And so, and I bring this up because there's this element of Thomas Sutpen has to has to kind of go international, just like Bonnie Prince Charles does um, in the 1740s. Um, but I bring this up because we've, we've been watching the show Outlander, which, by the way, we had to stop because it just got too brutal. But um, you know, I, I have Scottish uh, ancestry, and and it's really moving to think about the Scottish people wanting self-designation. And I think that, you know, that there's a reason that a lot of, a lot of people um, connect, like especially Irish versus the, the English with uh, like, you know, the black um, Southern population versus the white establishment. Um, because there is this element of even today that there's still a, a, a class difference. There's still a sense of uh, injustice and, and needing to rectify the injustices of the past in, in the present. And so Sutpen goes away. He gets a wife. He has a child who, who comes back. <laughs> uh, but, but he comes to Mississippi, a made man, and he's ready uh, to start his empire. And so he makes a land deal. He sells, or he trades, I guess I should say. He trades a gold coin, which must have been a really big gold coin, for 10, uh, sorry, 100 square miles, so 10 miles by 10 miles stretch of Mississippi owned by, the, I think, the Chicksaws. And so he buys this land. He calls it uh, Sutpen's 100, so that's his 100, mi 100 square miles. Um, and as I mentioned in the episode, uh, the last episode, that, that's about a third the size of the city we live in. So it's an enormous amount of land. You cannot fathom farming that much land by yourself, and of course that that's why you would need so many slaves. And so um, so he undertakes this this vision that is probably above and beyond anything that anybody's seen in Mississippi. Certainly in Mississippi, maybe in the entire South. And so he has this courthouse-sized house built. And so um, one of the things I want to talk about is the architect, because that's one of the first things we see is he brings this French architect with him from Haiti, 
and I think they they got him in New Orleans, but maybe he knew either knew about his work in Haiti or I don't know. But the French architect is it's Thomas Sutpen, his Haitian slaves, and the French architect, and the French architect kind of figures in several different stories. Whitney, what do you think about Thomas Sutpen and how he interacted with? You talked a little bit about how he interacted with his slaves, but talk about how he interacted with the French architect. Well, I'm going to kind of connect that slave and architect treatment mm-hmm. a little bit, just because, you know, I was thinking while you were talking about how, you know, you said just a few minutes ago that it wasn't clear if Thomas had decided whether or not to to let that young boy in his front door once he got successful. It's very ambiguous whether... I don't think he even knows. I, I don't think he includes that as part of his design. Like you can imagine someone in his position saying, well, one day I'm going to be big enough to shut people out of my front door. Or yeah. on the flip side saying, well, one day I'm going to be big and powerful and I'm going to be kinder and more magnanimous than that and more open-minded. It doesn't seem to me that he's decided because he flips back and forth in the way he treats people and he's very inconsistent and it doesn't seem that, like, race and class are, are consistent barriers in his mind, but sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't. Like, if I, I'll give you a couple of quick examples. Like, his slaves, he works alongside them to build his house. He covers himself in mud from head to foot to keep off the mosquitoes like they do while they're working. Like, he's, Rosa keeps saying he's indistinguishable from his slaves during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and even, like, Jason Thompson says something similar. And he'll fight with his slaves like for, for fun and for sport. And Rose is really horrified by that too, because he's like getting down on their level and like gouging each other's eyes out and fighting really dirty. And like, it just feels so undignified. So in some ways he doesn't draw a ton of distinctions and like Wash Jones, who's like a kind of poor white trash, like he was growing up. He'll sit and like drink wine with him and hang out with him all the time, but he won't let Wash come to his front door. So it's like all these weird kind of, cogent distinctions and can't decide when to uphold these distinctions and when not to. And the French architect, to circle back, I didn't forget. No, I know. <laughs> the French architect has a similar ambiguity to him because it's like he brings this French architect and it's really emphasized that that's a pretty um, classy move to have a French architect. Like, who has a French architect? The French architect is wearing these really sophisticated clothes and this, like, flashy hat that looks like someone who would wear it on the stage or something. And he apparently, he apparently never changes his clothes. Because he has that years. one set yeah. of fancy clothes. But he doesn't help build the house. He just supervises, whereas Thomas, like, gets in and gets his hands dirty and, and helps, like, make the bricks and cut the timber and everything. The French architect just watches and, like, tells him what to do. So in a way, he seems like he's kind of an elite or he's above Thomas. But then he wants to leave, and Thomas won't let him leave, so he runs away. And Thomas literally hunts him down with dogs and his slaves, and slaves as if he's an animal and, like, chases him through treetops and stuff. And the weirdest thing about it, I don't know, I guess maybe it's not weird because these people were used to the concept of hunting human beings. But, like, General Compson, who's not a general yet, but, you know, whatever, his friend Compson is, like, hanging out with him and hearing his life story like it's the most normal thing in the world to be, like, chasing a dude (laughs) through the swamp and chasing a white man through the swamp, like a respectable architect. It's just, it's a weird, it's a weird situation. And then when he's caught, he handles it almost like 
gallantly, like he, I think he does some sort of gesture with his hat where he's like, and you caught me, like as if it was all in good sport or mm-hmm. something instead of being devastated. It's very weird. It's funny that you mentioned that because I, it, I mean, I, my mind's going a million different places, but one of which is why would you need a French architect? And I think that he would know about French architecture from Haiti um, because it's a Haitian colony. Haitian colony. It's a French colony. But I was thinking about this. What if that also could represent like the French Revolution? And the French Revolution is his architecture for what he wants to do to up upend the entire establishment. It's like as if the people revolting in the French Revolution didn't want to overthrow the aristocracy and burn down the chateau. They wanted to build their own chateau and each one of them get to be an aristocrat, I guess. Like Yeah, kind of like replace the aristocrats instead of destroy the aristocracy the aristocracy. But um but that just goes with who he is. He seems to be the kind of person that doesn't take the time to learn things well. He just kind of takes the gist of things. And it's interesting that he names his first son Charles, uh, but his son is not named Charles Sutpen, it's Charles Bon. And so uh, we're going to talk about Charles and, and Henry uh, a lot in the next episode. But for now, I just wanted to talk about the fact that Sutpen named him Charles and, and named his other son Henry because uh, there is that, that uh, Henry is, you know, famously a, a king name in England and King Henry VIII, you and know? In France, too. In and, France. And, and so it's a regal name. Um, and you think about King Henry VIII, who... <laughs> Wanted a son, (laughs) and his sons destroyed him. Um, But, you know, there's an element of that that I think is very intentional on Faulkner's level, whereas on Sutpen's level, I think it's, uh, I think he's kind of an idiot savant. Like, he kind of rewrites history with this idea of, like, the Tudor uh, lineage of English kings versus the... Um, Scottish line that started with James the First and and ended with Bonnie Prince Charlie or Prince Charles, and Charles Bond by the way, Bond Charles Charles Bond. So um, you know it's it's interesting that he names his kids such in- eccentric names. I mean Judith, which is you know probably most famous for uh, beheading Holofernes Holofernes. Um, but, you know, he has a biblical name for his daughter, and he has a, a kingly name for his son. And then for his other son, he has kind of a, 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 a king in exile name. And so those, those all feel very intentional, like I said, from Faulkner's level. But I, I don't think Sutpen necessarily wanted to reenact uh, the entire uh, power play of Scotland versus England, but I do think that's in his blood, and I think that that's in the South's blood. And I think uh, Faulkner, particularly, who himself had a lot of Scottish ancestry, would have known a lot of those stories, and w- you know would have had it in him to kind of think about the South in, in a bigger picture than just about the South versus the North, which is how we, you know, we've been kind of conditioned in America to just think about the Civil War as being the first time that the that there was like a strife between the South and, and anybody else. But but I really think the South exists as a way to try and replicate, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the lifestyle of the English aristocracy. And, and even in 2020, I think people still believe maybe one day they'll get to line that hammock and have 
you know, a servant at the very least, tell someone coming up to the road saying, hmm, got to go to the back, back door, you know, um, because there's this level of sophistication and class that so- the Southern people aspire to that I really don't think people in the other regions of America aspire to that same level of, um, I'm just going to say the word class because I can't gentility. think of Gentility. Yeah, gentility <laughs> is the right word. Um, but, but that comes from England. It doesn't come from you know, New York or California or, or, you know, another state in the, in the union. So, um, I thought, you know, we've talked about kind of Sutpen's origins and, and, and his, uh, his ambition. We'll talk a little bit about his downfall here and we'll talk more about, um, how that downfall happens more specifically, uh, in respect to Charles and Henry in their episode. But Whitney, talk, talk about, uh, Sutpen, as as he nears, I guess the climax of his completion of of the the, the design. Um, what what goes wrong for him? Does he does he ever know what went wrong? <laughs> the mistake he calls it. It's one single mistake he must have made, because otherwise his plan must have been perfect. Um, I think. I mean that seems to me to be the problem with Setpin in terms of, especially how he's depicted by Jason Compson and, you know, his, his friend General Compson, I guess, by extension. His big problem seems to be, they call it his innocence in the book, but and to some degree, I think it's like a hubris. Um, this He believes that he is so potent and shrewd and courageous that he is indomitable and indomitable (laughs) that word um he believes that he is not subject to fate he believes that he's not subject to circumstances changing and that's why he believes that if something went wrong with his design it's because he made a mistake because he's in control so he takes ownership of that he doesn't believe that it could just be that he can't control things. And so that's at least Quentin and Shreve kind of attribute his downfall to that, that he almost either he won't um, acknowledge what maybe his, his truest mistakes were, which one suggestion for his big mistake is that he didn't understand that his past would come back and haunt him in any way that he just assumed he could kind of pay off his first wife and child and get them out of his life and they would be gone forever. And he's like, I handled it correctly. I was fair to them. It's done. And how naive that is, which is, I think where this concept of innocence is coming from. So that's one idea of what caused his downfall. But I think, a tremendous lack of like ownership and communication over the situation happening with Henry and Judith and Charles from, from my perspective seems like a a huge part of his downfall. And that connects to the King David story, which we'll talk about later, but you know, Absalom was David's son and David refused to kind of step in and take responsibility for the things that were happening among his children. And it it led to him to a, a tremendous amount of pain and suffering. Yes. And, uh, Gosh, there's just so much to say about Sutpen, even though he's really not that he's really not that complex of a character. He he seems like he's very much um he is exactly who you think he is. But 
I think, like I said about the antebellum South, I think he in some ways is so, not transparent as a character, but he, he is so um, uh, just, I guess, kind of like standard size, standard issue size of a character in some ways that you can superimpose upon him the entire antebellum South. That he somehow, uh, his entire existence it, it is not just one man. It is it is the embodiment in a person of the entire will of the of the antebellum South, which was a no past, all future, you know, go go go, um, you know, win win win, victory, you know, abounds for everyone that that that's that's brave enough to do it. And is he evil or is he innocent and gallant? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes to all sides. And and um, I bring that up because ultimately he is killed by Wash Jones. Now, <laughs> Wash, I'm assuming, is short for Washington. Now, if you had to say what killed the antebellum South, Washington, D.C., deciding to go to war with the antebellum South. If the North had never, if if the Union had never fought the Confederacy, we could be living in a a, a completely different country than people, you know, above the Mason-Dixon line right now, even 150 years later. I think that it's possible, it's also possible that that country could have splintered and could have fallen and could have, you know, been taken over by another country. Like, let's say Mexico had taken over the South. Who knows? But... I think that Wash killing uh, Sutpen is, is indicative of what had to happen to the antebellum South, that it couldn't destroy itself. It was even in its last moments before the Civil War, it, it's like it was trying to get even more powerful so that it could withstand the Civil War. And then you have this Wash Jones sharecropper you know, old man, he's actually older than, than Sutpen, and he actually loves Sutpen. He actually looks at Sutpen as almost like what he, he says, he's as if what, what I think God would look like riding on a horse. Is that what you're about to read? But, um, but he, he, he just admires uh, Sutpen so much, and yet Sutpen crosses, you know, a, a line. And I think that that's just it, is that Washington, D.C. loved the South. The South brought in so much money for the, for the Union, for, for the United States of America. But at some point, it crossed the line where the, the, the people in power in, in you know, Washington, D.C. said, we can't tolerate the South making their money off of slavery and, and, the, and the, you know, the, the fruits of slavery and farming and whatnot. And so... I think there's just that element of it took Wash killing Sutpen to stop Sutpen, just as it took war to stop the Civil War, or to, to stop the Antebellum South, because it just would never have stopped on its own volition, I don't think. It would have changed, and maybe, like I said, maybe it would have fallen in, in many generations later, but... It was steamrolling ahead, and then all of a sudden it just hit a brick wall. And that's exactly what happens at the beginning of, of Sutton's Downfall, which is when Charles Bond shows up. That's really, if you want to say, like, when does he start dying? <laughs> it's, it's right there. But he, he still thinks, if I can get a son, another son, through Wash Jones's granddaughter, Millie, then 
it, my dream will live on. And sadly, Millie has a girl, and Wash Jones kills <laughs> kills Sutpen and and the, the baby, and then they the the authorities from Jefferson kill Wash, and it's just. Uh, sad ending all around but but I think that that's just it is I, I think in some ways America died because it had a civil war and so the America that we live in is really a new country because uh, the civil war is actually not a civil war it's actually a war between nations you know they, they used to call it the war between the states but the thing about it is it wasn't between two states you know like oh Germany and France you know that's two states that's you know we call them countries, but that would be two states of government, and and then you know the the civil war would be like the English civil war, where you have people that are all English fighting for control of England, but really the civil war in America is an international war, and I think that that's something we really have lost about our country's history is this idea that for four years there were two countries in this land, and that is just a different mindset than thinking of the South still thinking of themselves as Americans. And so Sutpen had fought and fought and fought to get supremacy within this world and then the world changed. And he, and he went to battle and he was a colonel in, in, this, in the Confederate Army because I think he wanted to give himself more time <laughs> to, to, to advance his, his design. But he comes back and, and the, you know, the war is over, the South is lost and... and, and it's it's just bad all around, but but he doesn't give up until Wash makes him, and I think that that's a really powerful ending for him is that he does die in this violent act from someone that had to go to the back door. So it's it's you know you can call it karma if you want to, but I think it's it's just a, it's a purposefully designed life by a very purpose purposeful writer Faulkner to show that no matter how hard you rage and rage against the dying light, the light will go out for you. Um, I'm, I really like this idea of Wash representing Washington. I just hadn't thought of it. I think I had been thinking through Wash killing Thomas as another way in which the past was catching up to him because Wash was the sort of man that Thomas was raised to be, the sort of man his father was, you know? Yeah. Um, that he can't escape who, that that identity and and can't like metamorphose, but I'm very interested in what you're proposing too because I'm thinking through, like you said, the the Civil War happened. It kind of came to a head because the South decided it didn't want to be part of the Union anymore. It wanted to be its own nation, and like. Abraham Lincoln got elected kind of placating people and saying, I'm not going to touch slavery. It's fine. It's fine. Like he wasn't coming in guns blazing, like going to abolish slavery. It really was just a matter of the South being like, we can't be told what to do by you people. And I think there's just this arrogance in the South. Um, There's actually a a part I wanted to read from page 232 related to that. Um, This is Quentin saying, Father said that maybe for the first time in his life, he began to comprehend how it had been possible for Yankees or any other army to have whipped them, the gallant, the proud, the brave, the acknowledged and chosen best among them all to bear the courage and honor and pride. Above that, he had been talking about the arrogance and pride and like 
fine horses and fine plantations and just all, all the beauty, what he considers to be the kind of beautiful grand things about the antebellum South. But these men, just like Thomas Upman, were too proud to realize that someone ungallant and who's not brave and who's not proud can kill them. Like Washones is not gallant and brave and proud, but he just got insulted beyond what he could bear because Thomas essentially, after years and years of Wash serving him and his family, of him bringing them game to live on during the Civil War, of him being a sycophant to Thomas and looking up to him and thinking of him as his paragon, um, and him assuming that Thomas cared about him too or had some level of just kind of basic respect for him too. Thomas walks in and treats his granddaughter and the child that he is conceived with the granddaughter like trash, like an animal. And it just, he can't take it. It shatters his illusion about this man actually being gallant and actually being decent. And I think that there's this, this, the, the Southern leaders had this sense in which we're too good to be defeated by people like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, like those Northerners who I think maybe in the Southern conception, Northerners were all mostly sort of small potatoes people. You know, there weren't these sort of heroes. They were just sort of like blacksmiths and lawyers, petty men. How are these petty men going to defeat us? Yeah. Well, your arrogance can blind you to the fact that you're vulnerable. Just like Thomas Sutton could have walked up to that man in the hammock and shot him in the head and he thinks about doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, like that man was too comfortable to realize he was vulnerable. Yeah. Well, and the page that Whitney was on, I'm going to read the next a little bit. It says it would probably be about sunset now and probably he could feel them quite near now. Father said it probably seemed to him that he had, he could even hear them. All the voices, the murmuring of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow beyond the immediate fury. Old Wash Jones come a tumble at last. He thought he had Sutpin, but Sutpin fooled him. He thought he had him, but old Wash Jones got fooled. And and there's this element in that moment where you remember, oh yeah, the sound of fury, that's titled after uh, Macbeth. Um, and, and, and there it is again, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And, and immediate fury. Um, I think I think Faulkner. I mean, I'm presuming, but I, I think Faulkner put in Thomas Sutpen enough of the DNA of Macbeth as a character to make him feel Shakespearean from an angle. That's why I say this novel is about portraiture because I think you can read this novel and see a Shakespearean hero that falls, but you can also see so many other things. And I think that that concept of, you know, Sutpen is Macbeth. Well, no man born of woman will ever destroy Macbeth. And, and, and you know, then uh, wink, uh, Macduff was cesarean section. And so um, that element of, I think he can't, he can't be defeated. He's not, he's not killed in the Civil War. The Civil War didn't kill him. Um, his son killing his other son didn't kill him. None of these things can destroy him. The only thing that destroys him is the thing that he was, which is what Whitney was saying. He was Wash Jones. That's who he was. And I think he is, just like the antebellum South, trying to escape 
the nightmare of history. And, and, and this is what this novel is really doing in a very profound way, which is saying you have to go to sleep. And sometimes you're going to have nightmares, but you can wake up the next morning and keep living. But you can't keep the nightmares from coming unless you don't sleep. And if you don't sleep, you die. And so there's this concept of Thomas Sutton has this grand design I think to to right the wrong that was done to him, which was he was treated with no dignity. And by doing that, maybe he could have righted the wrong of slavery. Like maybe eventually he could have taken a slave in at the front door and made him a son. And there's this this idea of adoption and 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 you know re refiguring who you are as a person and this idea of you're not limited who, to who you're born as. And that's, that's the American dream. That's the, in, in a sentence right there is, you are not limited to the person you're born as because you can be anything in America. But watch your back because when you compare your granddaughter to a horse and you say the horse would get better lodging, you know, I guess that's his daughter. His daughter watched his great-granddaughter. If you compare someone's great-granddaughter to a horse, watch out because he's got a scythe in his hand. I read an article by Clint, I guess that's how you say his name, mm-hmm. Clint Brooks. It's a nice name. Um, he compared um, Sutpen to both Oedipus and Macbeth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the Oedipus connection makes sense to me. There are all these little hints and connections to, to Greek drama and the, the novel anyway. But the Oedipus connection makes a certain sense to me because there's this sense of I can escape my destiny, you know, and, and this, that innocence, I guess you might call it like Oedipus is innocent enough to think he's escaped from the, the Oracle and through just acts of his own will and decision. And he he hasn't. And then you've got Macbeth who I love, I love the way that Brooks put it. He said, Macbeth tried to learn this innocence by acts of the will and proved to be a less than satisfactory pupil. Um, in other words, Macbeth tried to convince himself with a tremendous amount of help from the women in his life, like witches and Lady Macbeth, tried to convince himself that he was not susceptible to sort of bad luck or things turning against him, you know, that he was invincible, um, which is essentially the innocence that Thomas Upman has too. Um, by the end of Macbeth, Macbeth is really nihilistic, and that's when he's saying the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, and, you know, life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. What's kind of interesting about Sutpen is he doesn't seem to be um, giving up as much by the end, you know, he's still kind of trying to maintain his, like, his design as much as he can to the end. So uh, I know that this is not the original book cover. The original book cover looks like a dark house, (laughs) which was the original title of the novel. But um, the cover that we've got is this vintage edition, um, Vintage International, and uh, it's really hokey looking. I, I kind of hate it. Uh, because it's just, the original looks so iconic, especially the, the vintage edition that we had from college, and, and it's, it's got this gold side, and the, the house looks haunted, and, you know, it looks, it just looks like a, a book about the antebellum South, but 
here is this novel that has a new cover, which the the burgundy and orange I don't I don't get that and the Absalom Absalom and and you know handwritten like looks like Civil War era font, that's fine that's nice it gives us a, a vibe of when it's coming from, but let's talk for a minute as we end about. <laughs> The picture of these feet. I'm glad you brought this up. I've been thinking about these feet. Um, because it's a statue of, um, you can see the feet and the trousers. It's a statue on a pedestal, not a pedestal, like a platform thing, sitting on the front step of a brick house. Right? And it's obviously a photograph. So it it's not... Um, it's a photograph taken much more recently than 1869 when Sutpen dies. I do. I, I find it kind of conceptually intriguing, this idea of like a statue in motion, but like frozen walking out of a house. Like you never put a statue on the front steps of a house to be in the way, mm-hmm. but like as if Thomas Sutpen is like stuck out there at his at the door of his house through all time or something? Well, the more I think about this, the more ingenious it is in a way. It's like whoever designed this like accidentally got it perfect. It looks hokey though. You're it right. Does. Like <laughs> I'll tell you why it looks hokey to me. It looks hokey to me because the house looks like a brick ranch, like our house. Right. And our house is gray. It it doesn't look like a grand palatial French architect designed plantation manor or whatever. And it's got some weeds growing. It's it, it, it's kind of it looks untrimmed hedges. It looks as though it's a statue that someone got made to commemorate their great-granddad or great-great-granddad or whoever. But what I thought about is, is this Ozymandias as a southern plantation owner? Ooh. And everything's crumbling because it's like, you know, the edifice is crumbling that he's built. So for those of you that don't know Ozymandias, the poem, please look it up by Percy Shelley. If you've seen Uh, Breaking Bad, you've heard Ozymandias. And, and um, I I think it's kind of perfect because you can't see the whole statue, just like you can't see all of Sutpen, just like you can't see all of history. It is still sturdy the same way that I think the antebellum South is still uh, influential today. It is uh, clearly sturdy some sort of stone, bronze. It, it's clearly fancy. Um, it's not cheaply made. The shoes are, are like perfectly cased and, and they look like fancy shoes. And so this is clearly Sutpen after he succeeded and he's on the front porch, which is where he couldn't go. Mm-hmm. And so there, it's, it's, ama- it's amazing how, how beautifully perfect this, this picture is for this novel. It's except- like all dusty though. Mm-hmm. Which is like the Anazamanias that ends with something like the lone the sand stretch the sand far stretch away. far away yeah. or something yeah like the the I think the word dust might even come yeah. up at some point because and dust is so important in this novel yeah. and 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 here here is this statue that we only see the the feet of the legs and the feet or the shins to the feet and yet that's so indicative if you try to understand history by looking at one statue of a person, in some ways you understand it perfectly because you can vividly in, in, you know, implant that into your mind 
And that's why I think statues today are so controversial. It's like, you know what? If nobody cared about Robert E. Lee or Nathan Bedford Forrest or you know any Confederate leader, then they would leave the statues up. But they're still powerful now because the past is so powerful if you let it be. And I think that that's what this, you know, this image is showing is someone has chosen to keep this on their front porch. They might not even know who this is. They might just be like, oh, it's just a fancy looking statue. It makes me feel genteel. And that's, I think that's part of what the South was doing all along. They were trying to, to, to be gentility and they were not gentility by blood. So they thought, well, maybe we can do it by force and, and we're still dealing with the consequences of that ambition, but I think the South is still an ambitious place and will never lose that. And I think now maybe the ambition is to restore people to, to equality, but that's as, as, as big an undertaking as it is to, you know, turning virgin forest and wilderness into the English countryside. And it's as big of an undertaking as fighting the Civil War. And it's as big as an undertaking as um, desegregating schools and, and, and all of the things that have happened in the South that have been so contentious and so, um, I think, just, just energy draining, I think are also exhibits of the fact that the South is a special place. And I think that's why Sutpen is the the centerpiece of the novel is he is someone who has so many ripples on so many pools long after he's gone, including Quentin Compson, who's, you know, 2000 miles away in Cambridge, Massachusetts, as he's telling this story with Shreve. But Sutpen is, is just like the, 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 the past in general, he, he is so powerful because he can just consume the minds of people that, that are just trying to stay stay warm at night in a cold night. And Sutpen as a statue, uh, it's, it's fascinating to think about that because I think part of the problem with statues is that they don't communicate enough in a way. Um, they're too ambiguous. You know, you have a, you have a statue, which is in, inherently treating the person who is immortalized in the statue as important, as deserving of being immortalized. But there's no, nece- there's no necessarily there's not necessarily a label on the statue that says like admire this man or this man has a problematic legacy or now we have come to realize this man was wrong you know like I think that there's a sense that you either want to just tear it down or put a clear label on it as the the thinking changes over the years but it's. Yeah. It's just an image, and that's how that's kind of how something comes across in the novel. Like people are putting these labels on him, but you get to the end and you're not really sure which one sticks. Yeah, and I think that that's a, a great place to end on as we you know get ready to hand off to to Charles and Henry. Is you know Sutpen is he's a picture. I mean that's that's why I use the word portraiture for this novel. He's a picture that says a thousand words a thousand times. I mean he. He is he has got so much to convey, but he can't speak it himself. He's not even a narrator in the book. And so, you know, he's the main character, but in the way in a way he's one of the least known characters in the novel. But I think that's that's why I say he's so analogous to the Antebellum South, is that he just it's easier to to idealize or demonize him 
than it is to see him as a great man. That's that's where we wanted to stop. Is is Thomas Sutpen a great man, Whitney? <laughs> well, I was I was wondering to myself whether Faulkner's depicting him as a great man by the end of all of this. And um obviously I think some of the characters are treating him as a as an outsized character, malignant character, and then others are ca- treating him as a kind of character of outsized ambition and almost like a, a purity to a to degree because he's so focused on one thing. Um, to kind of want to say yes, like great because he's potent, you know, because he's powerful. Um, like he's got this kind of Nietzschean will, you know, to that's beyond good and evil as Nietzsche would have, Nietzsche would have it, you know. I, um, it's unclear whether his will is good or evil. It's just strong. So great in the sense, if you mean powerful, Mm -hmm. sure. Well, and I think that that's just it. The great Gatsby, you know, that this novel is written in the shadow of that novel. And, and I think that, you know, if you had to say, okay, well, what's the great American novel as of 1936? Well, a lot of people might've said the great Gatsby, but you know, that's something that we'll talk about in a future episode. Is this the great American novel? And I think, you know, Sutpen is a great man is, I mean, his, his, his land is called Sutpen's hundred and it's not Sutpen's hundred acres. It's Sutpen's hundred square miles. And so, um, I think that, you know, his results were great. Um, I don't know if he himself had the greatest, uh, mind or will or health or, you know, uh, what he said, potency. It's not like he had 20 kids, but he, he had something just as Jay Gatsby does, mm-hmm. just as I think a lot of the quote, great American novel, you know, protagonists have single minded determination. Yeah. Maybe. It is just staying power, uh, star power to borrow from the punk rock NBA. But I, th- I think that Thomas Sutpen, the more I think about him, the more I want to say about him. And, and I think that's a sign that Faulkner did his job well, which is he created a character that there's a lot to say about, and he only said a little bit about. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's a sign uh, that you did. <laughs> that you wrote a good novel. Um, but it is, it, the thing is, is there's so much said about Thomas Sutpen in the novel that it's kind of hard to find your own point of view on it. And, and, and we'll find more of that point of view as we talk about Charles and, and Henry next time. But, but uh, he really is, I, I think, a character that you underestimate just as you underestimate the cover of this novel, <laughs> which just looks, I mean, it, if you looked at it, you would never think, oh, I bet I'll read this and think this is the most demanding, rewarding, enriching novel in American history. But it might actually be. You know, I think he and Gatsby, um, one last thing I'll just toss in, but he and Gatsby both are, they're great men in this. If you think that great men are men who set wildly ambitious goals for themselves and then achieve them very quickly through just the, the, the force of their own determination and will. I think there's a certain part of the American experiment that, that is all about doing that and kind of can't help but admire it. But both of them are brought down by men who are absolutely not great men, right? Men who have very yes. little kind of like willpower and and strength of character of their own. But they just get really angry one day with Gatsby and Sutpen because they feel so hurt and insulted. 
and they act out and lash out, and that's all it takes. Yeah. To, to bring down the great man. Well, I think maybe that's a, a definition to end on with something is you you have to have something great about you if it takes someone to bring you down and that you don't bring about your own downfall. Like, I really think if Wash hadn't killed Sutpen, he'd still be, he'd be 110 years old or however old, he'd be, yeah, 103 years old at the time of this novel till, still trying to pop out a boy, you know, um, just like Henry VIII, you know? And, and, and I think that that's, um, that's just, you know, something that people don't think about about the South, but the idea of kingship and this idea of, even though America pretends to love democracy, I think America is a lot more friendly to the idea of monarchy than we think we are. Uh, but the question is, who is the monarch and, you know, what is he or she doing for the country? And for Sutpen, I actually think he actually, in some ways, brings about the Civil War upon the South by being so successful. So this idea of before he got there, Jefferson, Mississippi was just a little, little bit of nothing. But by the by, the time of the Civil War, Mississippi was really one of the the cash cows. I mean, it was one of the the most successful colonies, and and the most uh, um, non compromising. And and I think that those words, you know, fit up into a T. And you know, we'll talk about um, the Civil War a lot when we talk about Charles and Henry in this episode. But I, I really think he, in some ways. Maybe his design was to to topple down the entire system, and he didn't know it was going to be through civil war, but it it just it happened, and he won. So somehow he wins, but he didn't know it. Maybe that's maybe that's part of what makes him great is that he doesn't know his own greatness. Well, that's uh that's Thomas Sutpen. As I as I should have known, we talked more about him than than Rosa, but. Uh, but that, that's why I think Rosa has so much to say for herself and Thomas Sutton doesn't. And, and that's partly why I think is there's so much to say about him. And um, he's certainly a, a figure in, in literary history that will hopefully remain forever. Uh, but he, he's, he's an enigma wrapped in a mystery. Uh, but anyways, this has been Summer Reading with the Deals. We look forward to talking more about Sound, about Sound of the Fury. About Sound of the Fury and Absalom, Absalom particularly by William Faulkner in the next episode. Bye-bye.